You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I think we all know what time of year it is. It's Christmas, right? It's that most wonderful time of the year. And I am so glad that it's here. On the other hand, you know, I can't be the only one who couldn't wait for Christmas to arrive when I was a kid, only to now find as an adult it comes way too quickly. I mean, it's amazing. It's like you take a nap, you blink, and the next thing you know, it's Christmas. And you have your own little kids telling you, only six more days till Christmas. It's like, yeah, kid, I know. I know. It's almost here. And we are so glad that it is. We love Christmas. This is a wonderful time of year. It's a beautiful season. Not just for the world, but especially for us, those whose faith are grounded in the king of Christmas. So this morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And I'd like to begin this Sunday before Christmas by making a beeline straight for the text. No doubt we have all heard the story of the wise men several times. But given the cacophony of Christmas songs, traditions, and retail marketing, it becomes easy for us to forget the details that are actually provided here for us within Scripture, let alone the big picture. So please follow along with me as I read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went out on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Several decades later, after this account, the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians, and he would say, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And while that's true, most of us are none of those things. 
One of the earliest stories we have of Jesus being worshipped involves men who were wise, powerful, and noble. Last week in chapter 1, we saw that an angel told Joseph that Jesus would come into this world and he would save his people from, his, from their sins. And while these wise men were great men in the eyes of the world, they were also great sinners in the eyes of God. And as we'll see, they, they make excellent trophies for the throne room of God's sovereign grace. I've divided this story into four headings. And hopefully that will help us this morning as we clip along and as we dive into this rich passage of Scripture, because it's an incredible account and we need signposts. We need some way of marking our journey as we go. So hopefully these four headings will help us accomplish that goal this morning. To begin with, we are introduced to the king's guest. The king's guest, that's number one. In the first verse, we're told, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. That's important because it tells us when and where Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem, just as it was foretold by the prophet Micah. However, there were two cities at that time named Bethlehem. There was more than one. So which Bethlehem is it? Is it the one to the north in Galilee or is it the one to the south in Judea? Matthew tells us that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea which is located about six miles south of Jerusalem. It was a rather small, insignificant town of about a thousand people, so 20 times smaller than our small town. And yet, this was King David's hometown. This was the birthplace of the Davidic dynasty of kings, and now the birthplace of the ultimate Davidic king, the king of kings. That's where, that, that's the where, the location of our story, the when, is in the days of Herod the king. And that's important. It's actually very helpful for us that that is recorded for us here within Scripture, that this happened in the days of Herod the king, because it helps us identify the timing of Jesus' birth. I think most of us, if we were asked at a, at a trivia night, when was Jesus born? Most of us would probably raise our hands and say, zero, <laughs> right? Or 1 B.C. or 1 A.D. But that's not the correct answer. Herod the Great reigned from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. History tells us that he died in 4 B.C. So Jesus had to be born before that, most likely around the end of 6 B.C. or the beginning of 5 B.C., meaning that later on when they calculated the timing for B.C. and A.D., before Christ and, and Anno Dominio in the time of our Lord, that they were off just a little bit. And that's okay. They got close. We'll give them an A-. minus. Regardless, we know that this scene occurred less than two years after Jesus' birth, and Herod is still around. Verse 16 tells us that Herod killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. We also know that this scene takes place at least 40 days after Jesus' actual birth. I hate to cast a dark shadow on all of our nativity sets and Christmas cards, but the wise men were far away when Jesus was actually born. You, you don't find the wise men and the shepherds mingling. They didn't have a mixer after traveling and visiting Christ in the stall because Christ was far from the stall. He was out of the stall by the time the wise men show up. The local shepherds experienced the joy and privilege 
of seeing Jesus as a newborn baby, but the Magi never made it to the manger for several reasons. First of all, when they finally do find Jesus, where is he? He's in a house. He's in a house. And when you piece together the order of events from all of the other Gospels, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and then eight days later he is circumcised and he is given his name, Jesus. Several weeks after that, Jesus is taken to the temple in Jerusalem, and he is consecrated to the Lord as the Old Testament law prescribes. And then after that, Joseph and Mary, they collect their things from Nazareth, and they return to live in Bethlehem for a time. And then that brings us to the events of Matthew 2. Once Herod orders the execution of all of Bethlehem's babies and Joseph is warned in a dream, he takes his family and he escapes to Egypt and eventually settles in Nazareth, fulfilling all of the prophecies surrounding Jesus' birth. Another reason why the Magi couldn't have been there at his birth is the travel time that it takes to get there. As we'll see in a moment, these men most likely came from Babylon. And the main trade route between Jerusalem and Babylon is about 800 miles. So if the star appeared at Jesus' birth and they kept up a good pace of about 20 miles a day, it would have taken them at least 40 days to arrive in Jerusalem. Factor in the time spent of them asking around and, and speaking with Herod and so forth. Jesus is at least a few months to a year old when they arrive. So that's the setting. That's the time and the place for these events. Look at the rest of verse 1. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now again, the text does not tell us how many there were. We just assumed that there had to be at least three, right? Since they brought three gifts with them. You would just assume that, okay, well, they brought these gifts with And we don't even know how much of the gifts they brought. It could have been a handful. It could have been a truckload. It could have, there could have been three of them. There could have been 30 of them. We honestly don't know. The text doesn't tell us how many wise men there actually were. But honestly, the number is not important. It's not important enough in the text for us to know, for, for it to tell us. What is important is the term that Matthew uses here in this verse to identify them. Because the magos, or the magi, as we like to call them, were an elite class of royal counselors. In eastern countries, where monarchs were, were common, they were the power behind the throne. The king was obviously the top dog, but his magi were the ones that he turned to when he needed help. They were his trusted advisors, his tested mentors, his truest allies. These magi likely arrived from Babylon or Mesopotamia. Because Matthew 2 is written in a way that just assumes that we should know who these people are. It doesn't go on to explain them or describe them in any great detail. It's written very much from a point of view or a perspective that, okay, here are the Magi. Like, we should just expect them. We should know that they're coming. And we should already have some clue as to who these people are. And I believe that's because way back into the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, we find the same word used there, magi. It appears in Daniel 2. So let's go ahead and turn there just for a moment to Daniel chapter 2. If we backtrack over 500 years to Daniel's time in Babylonian captivity, we have the first mention of the magi in Daniel chapter 2. 
Look at what he says there, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the magicians, that word magicians is the same Greek word that we have in our text in Matthew 2. It is the magi. You can even hear it in the word, the magi or the magos and magician. Notice, when it comes to the king's men, they are listed first, followed by the enchanters. The enchanters, these were essentially ancient equivalents of fortune tellers. Their primary responsibility was to visit sick people and perform rituals that would reveal their fate. Are they going to live? Are they not going to live? Are they going to come through? Or are they going to pass on into the afterlife? That was their job. Next, we have the sorcerers. These are the wicked men who would dabble in parlor tricks and demonic activity. And then finally, the Chaldeans, who were a special type of priest. And these were the mystery solvers. These were the ones who would sit in the back and play Sudoku all day long. They would, they would, uh, they, they would love a good puzzle, and they would just wait for the king to call them forward so they could unravel whatever mystery he had. But the Magi... They're listed first because they were the ones that were closest to the king. In a way, they possessed all the skills that came from these other three groups. They were experts in Zoroastrianism and astrology and communicating with the unseen world. Now, they could do more than simply make a rabbit appear inside of a hat. And from a human standpoint, in the eyes of fallen men, these were the best of the best. These magicians were something else. And yet it becomes clear in Daniel 2 that these magi cannot interpret the king's troubling dream. They can't interpret it. They can't even tell the king what the dream was, let alone what their dreams or what his dreams meant. In comes young Daniel, who not only tells the king about his dreams, but he gives the interpretation of them perfectly. Starting in verse 36, he looks into the future and describes successive kingdoms. In verses 36 to 38, he talks about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Babylon. In verse 39, he sees the Persian and Greek kingdoms. And then in verses 40 to 43, the Roman Empire and the time of Christ. After all these kingdoms, these world superpowers, rise and fall, look at what he says there in verse 44. And in the days of those kings... That is the last kingdom here that he mentions, the Roman Empire. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And get this, it shall stand forever. You know what kingdom he's talking about. This fifth and final indestructible kingdom that will last forever belongs to the king of Christmas. Imagine what the Magi must have thought as they are standing there, as Daniel stands there before the king and predicts the next 500 years of history with perfect accuracy. Look at verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect 
over what? All the wise men of Babylon. This isn't something that you easily forget. No doubt the Holy Spirit was not the only one interested enough in preserving this prophecy for generations to come. This story was passed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. This incredible story. You have to wonder what it would have been like for both magi, both sets of magi. For those who were there when it happened, for those who saw the prophecy and and listened to it firsthand as Daniel gave it to Nebuchadnezzar, and then those who years later, centuries later, after hearing the story passed down over and over and over again, and then seeing these kingdoms rise and fall, seeing the Persian Empire come, and the Greek Empire come, and then the Roman Empire come, and to see all of these things happen exactly how Daniel said they would. And then, in the days of the Roman Empire, for something miraculous to happen, for the star to rise in the east, for everything to align, This story would come alive for them. This story that there would be a king who would establish an eternal kingdom. That he will dominate all earthly powers and that the light of his eternal kingdom would never go out. And so as the Magi of Matthew 2 come to Jerusalem, they are coming to pay homage to this long-anticipated king. It's been over 500 years and these modern magicians are able to do the math. They have read the prophecies of the ancient Jews in Babylon. And no doubt they know their own history well enough to know that the other four kingdoms have brought them here to this point in history. Now back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, they come to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We'll talk about this rising star in a moment. But here they are in Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, looking for the king of the Jews, asking anyone and everyone they stumble across, have you seen him? Do you know where he is? This verse begins with a present active participle. So this isn't a question they asked once. This is a question that they asked over and over and over again. They want to know, where is this king, the one that we have been waiting for? The one that we have read so much about. These are the king's guests. Gentile magicians, the powers behind the throne, the world's elite, and the least likely to come and worship. And yet, here they are. That's the first signpost, the first stop in our story, the king's guest. Next, we see the king's greatness. The king's greatness. The scriptures make it a point to tell us how the arrival of the king affects different people differently. Beginning in verse 3, we see four responses to Jesus as the king. These responses are not limited to the historical setting we see here of his birth. Because even today, men and women will typically respond to the news that Jesus is king in one of four ways. I would encourage you as we walk through them together to ask yourself, Which one am I? Of of these four groups that are represented here in Matthew chapter 2, which group do I fall into this morning? The first response that we see is that of the rebellious. The rebellious. 
Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now Herod is a very interesting guy. He's one of those guys that as, as strange and as wild as he was, he is fascinating to read about. Anytime you have a chance to read about Herod, just take a few minutes and treat yourself. He was an interesting, interesting man. Shortly after coming to power, he squashed all of his opponents just within a few years, and he maintained total control over the region for the next three decades. He was known as Herod the Great primarily because of his magnificent building projects throughout the region. He was an incredible builder. He, he constructed beautiful cities like the city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean. He built palaces, ports, theaters, stadiums, hippodromes, gymnasiums, water systems, and gardens. You name it, Herod built it. The Jewish historian Josephus records that Herod loved building so much that when he ran out of room in his own region, he quickly went over, went over to another area and he started building for them because he didn't care. He didn't really care like where it was placed or who benefited from it. He just loved building. Josephus writes, And when he had built so much, he showed the greatness of his soul to no small number of foreign cities. End quote. But his crowning achievement was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews loved him for that, so much so that they, they christened the temple Herod's temple. They didn't call it Yahweh's temple, they called it Herod's temple. He was a gifted leader, a great builder, a giant figure. But he was also deranged and twisted. He was a despot. He had ten wives and over a dozen children, many of which he killed or had killed because he was incredibly paranoid. He was so afraid that one of his children or one of his wives or an extended family member would do him in and take over the throne. I don't want us to focus too much on Herod's cruelties this morning, so you'll have to come back on Christmas Eve to learn a little bit more about him. Because at that time, we'll go ahead and finish out the rest of chapter 2 and briefly look at the king's sovereignty. But here we are told that when Herod the king heard this news, he was troubled. Why? Why? Because he was king of the Jews. He was Herod the Great. He was the master of his own kingdom. And no one was going to take that away from him. Herod was willing to do whatever it takes to go to whatever length to ensure his dominance, to retain his command, his sovereignty, his control. He would gladly go down in history as the butcher of Bethlehem, the baby killer, so long as he called the shots and his throne belonged to him. This is the first response we see, the troubled king, the rebellious ruler. And while none of us here today command a small country, we have all been given a small measure of authority. We may not carry the keys to a kingdom, but we all carry the keys to our own hearts. As we saw in Philippians 2, Jesus has already been crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. God has highly exalted him and has already given him the name of Lord, the name that is above every other name. So the question is not, will you make him Lord of your life? But will you surrender and submit to the king who is Lord? That's the question. 
Will you relinquish your rights, set aside your command, and worship the sovereign who has claim to your throne, more of a claim to your throne than you have? Or will you do whatever it takes to hold on to what you have and command your own destiny? This is the first type of person who responds to the king of kings. This is the rebellious. Next we see the relaxed. The relaxed the nonchalant, the uncaring, the, those that can't be bothered. Again, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Notice Herod wasn't the only one troubled. All of Jerusalem was in a stir. When these magi arrived, there was nothing quiet or humble about them. These weren't three old guys quietly drifting into town on camels. Because of who these men were and what they did and where they came from, they would have most certainly traveled with a whole entourage of bodyguards and soldiers and Arabian horses and pomp and circumstance and opulence. Also, the fact that Herod had to hear about them secondhand, as verse 3 indicates, tells us that they didn't go straight for the palace. They didn't go straight to visit the current king of the Jews. No, as soon as they entered the Capitol building, they exploded, they exploded into the scene and they went straight to the people saying, where is your new king? Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? And remember, this word saying is a Greek participle telling us that this is a continual action. They didn't just go up to a vendor or two. They didn't quietly ask, hey, do you know where the star has led us? Do you know where we're supposed to go next? We've made it this far. That's not what they did. Instead, they set the entire capital into an uproar and asked everyone who saw them, where is he? Where is he? We've come a long ways to see him. Now, we're troubled. It means to stir up on the inside. It refers to that adrenal feeling that you get when you're depressed and you're fired up all at the same time and you don't know what to do. You want to turn your brain off to go to sleep and you can't. That is the feeling that is described here in this text. They were troubled. The people are scared. Why? Because they know. They know what their current king is like. They know that Herod is not going to stand for this. That if Herod feels threatened, bad times are coming and blood will flow in the streets. So they're troubled. Yet not one person, in spite of that, not one person in the entire city is troubled enough to look into the matter for themselves. Not one person. Jerusalem at that time had a population of over 80,000 people. 80,000 people, most of them Jewish. Here comes an entourage from the east saying, the king of the Jews is here, your Messiah, the long-awaited king of the promise to David has finally arrived. Don't you think at least one person would say, wait a minute, I gotta check this out for myself. There might be something to this. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Either way, it's only six miles south to Bethlehem. If they know their scriptures, they know that's where the Messiah was to be born. Why doesn't anyone bother themselves to look into this matter for themselves? Instead, the Magi are met with indifference. The people are troubled for fear of Herod. But when the announcement comes that their Messiah has been born, these people are too apathetic to be bothered. Unfortunately, the general population, 
Even today, our neighbors, our friends and family members, so many of them are in the habit of responding the exact same way. They hear the songs of Christmas. They see the nativities and receive our cards in the mail. But in the end, they could care less. Think about the sheer volume of people who celebrate Christmas each and every year and yet fail to worship or even recognize the king of Christmas. Friend, ask yourself right now, is this me? Is he talking about me? Have I been relaxed in my response? Between the parties, the pastries, and the presents, have you taken the time to thank God for the Christ of Christmas? Have you worshipped him first and foremost this Christmas season? Or have you been consumed with other things? Because we have so many other things right now that want our attention, want our time. Things like politics, fear, self-centeredness, or assuming the worst about others. Does that describe your Christmas season? Or does worshiping our King describe this season of your life? The main reason we respond apathetically to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is because we lose sight of who we actually are and who He actually is. We forget just how sinful we are and how desperately we need our Savior. We forget how wonderful, how brilliant, how magnificent Jesus is. To have left the courts of heaven and to become a creature of the dirt like us. God became a man to die for man so that man could be rescued from the slave market of sin. Because we all have the worst of terminal diseases. It is destined for every man to die once and then face judgment. If it were not for the miracle of the incarnation and Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross in the place of sinners, then each and every one of us would have to pay the full penalty. We would have to suffer the whole wrath of God for our own sins. If that reality would never leave our thinking. We would have no trouble worshiping our Savior. No trouble whatsoever. Knowing that He came and paid the price for us. He took the full force of God's wrath against sin so that everyone who would turn to Him and trust in Him for their deliverance would be saved. The world doesn't get it. They don't get it. They look at the cross, they look at the nativity, they see that as something that you might place on the tree or under it once a year. It all carries little meaning for them. We would expect such a relaxed response from the world. May we never find ourselves, though, so caught up in the world's celebration that we can't be bothered to fall before our king in worship. That's the second group. The third group who responds to the king in our text, is the religious. The religious. Look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod is so troubled, he assembles all of his religious experts, all of the experts in Jerusalem. He says, come together, tell me, tell me where this king is supposed to be. The chief priest would have included the high priest and every other head of state. These guys are more political than they are spiritual. These were the movers and the shakers, the decision makers of Jerusalem. 
The scribes were on the other side of that coin. They were the spiritual experts of their day. They were the teachers and the scholars, those who would copy the scriptures and study them. It makes sense for Herod to assemble this gathering. And notice that there is no question, no question whatsoever in Herod's mind who these magi have come to worship. He wants to know. He asks them specifically, what does the scripture say about the Messiah? He asks the question, what does the Bible tell us? Where is the Christ, the Messiah? Where is he supposed to be born? Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. God says Bethlehem may be small in size, but it's big in significance. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These priests and scribes, they know their Bibles. They have an answer ready. They would have won. They would have been the captains of their Bible quiz teams. Because they know chapter and verse. They know exactly where to go. They know where the answers are. But notice what they don't do. They don't take these claims by the Magi seriously. They don't send anybody six miles south to to Bethlehem to see for themselves, to see if their Messiah has actually been born or not. This is mind-blowing. This is unbelievable for any of us who love to study God's Word. I mean, how could you live your life like this? How could you know the Scriptures, study the Scriptures, day in and day out, the same Scriptures that so clearly point to the coming Messiah, and then come, come so close and yet fall so far from the truth? To get so caught up in religious practices and completely miss the King. Today, there are those who believe that they can earn their favor with God by staying busy religiously. They think, if I can just do this or that, if I can master that, I'll be good. I just need to get the ball so far down the field, and then I will have arrived. Surely God will be pleased so long as I do X, Y, and Z. But remember what we recently looked at in Philippians 3. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. And I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He says, all my religious efforts are garbage. They are the ultimate waste. Listen, Christ doesn't want your busyness. He doesn't want your religious activity. He wants your obedience. He wants your devotion. He wants your surrender. He wants your submission. Churches are full of people who are happy to be religious. Just so long as it doesn't cramp their style. I mean, I will gladly attend, I will gladly serve, I'll gladly give, I'll gladly be involved in church, I'll fellowship, I'll see my friends, all of those things are wonderful. Just don't tell me what to do. They love hearing about Jesus, they love hearing the Spirit speak through His Word, but don't cramp my style. If that describes you, then you are no better than the priests and the scribes who devoted their lives to religious activity and yet totally missed their Messiah. You can regularly attend church, know your Bible, and do wonderful things for the kingdoms, but be miles away from your king and remain just as lost as these leaders. That's the third most common response. We've seen the rebellious, the relaxed, and the religious. 
in stark contrast to all three of these groups, you have a fourth group of this final, of this final type of person listed here within the text. And that is the responsive. The responsive. And before we focus on them, Matthew wants us to know a little bit more about person number one, the rebellious. So he shines a spotlight back onto Herod just for a moment. Look at what happens next, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He calls them together without pomp and circumstances, quietly into, into his chambers. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. We know exactly why he did that. We're told later why he did that. So he could get a good feel. He wanted to know where to draw the line when it came to killing all of the newborn boys within the nation. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Listen, there are no limits. There are no lengths too far for the rebellious heart. You've heard it said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And while that's true, there's only one problem with that pithy little saying. That is that the rebellious heart loves sin. The rebellious heart loves sin. How many times have you heard someone say, how many times have you said, I can't believe I did that? Or, I don't know what came over me. Or, I don't know where that came from. I can tell you exactly where it came from. It came from your heart. Jesus said it over and over and over again. What comes out of your mouth is just an overflow of whatever you've already got inside of you. Whatever is already in your heart. Those are the things that come out. They don't just appear out of thin air. They aren't just the result of things that happen to us. No, we are responsible for our actions. We're responsible for our attitudes, for the things that come out of our mouths. Why? Because that is a true reflection of what is actually in our hearts. Here, the wickedness and the hypocrisy and the selfishness of Herod's greed comes out in the form of a terrible lie, a horrible lie. The Magi don't know this, of course, they don't have the benefit of skipping down to verse 16. But look at their response in the beginning of verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And the rest of the story then records a right response to the king of kings. In the next four verses, we see that they go, they rejoice, they submit, and they worship. They do everything the other three groups refuse to do, and they do it gladly. You see the king's greatness. It, you, you see it put on display here. Because the king's greatness, the greatness of, of Christ, of God in flesh, demands a response. Messiahs don't grow in trees. And there is only one mediator between God and man. If you haven't come to this Savior as a humble, self-denying worshiper, don't leave here today without rightly responding to Christ. This king, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, lived as God before he was born here on earth. He existed as God in the other realm, in the heavens. And yet he came to earth to be born of a woman, to live a sinless life, to suffer, to be humiliated beyond words, beyond the experience that any of us have ever 
participated in or had the dishonorable privilege of sharing. Christ suffered greatly. He died on the cross in the place of sinners so that all who would believe in him, trust in him for their salvation, they would have eternal life in his name. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So friend, come to Jesus. Bring all that you are and all that you have in worship to this King of Kings. The King's greatness demands a response. That's number two. Number three, we see the king's glory. The king's glory. Look at the rest of verse 9. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, as you can imagine, the last 2,000 years has produced a lot of theories surrounding the Christmas star. The earliest theories thought that it might have been a comet. In fact, the Greek word used here is the word astera, where we get our word asteroid. Several of the early church fathers, like Origen of Alexandria, subscribed to that view. Eventually, Johannes Kepler, the father of modern astronomy, suggested that it might have been when the planets Jupiter and Saturn lined up to create a bright light in 7 BC. This phenomenon is incredibly rare. Interestingly enough, the next one is scheduled for tomorrow night. Supposedly, the last time this happened, visibly, on the dark side of the planet, not the sunny side, was over 800 years ago. It's incredibly rare. Although I believe the next one, because we're already on this side of the planet, the next one we don't have to wait as long for, I think it's 2080 is when the next one will come along. Some of you might be around for that. I probably won't be. So you definitely want to catch it tomorrow night if the sky isn't too cloudy. But I seriously doubt that the star of Matthew 2 was a comet, an asteroid, or even the alignment of planets. I seriously doubt that. Because none of those wonders fit the description that we have here in the text. This is no stationary light or celestial body in the heavens. Notice this star rises, and then it moves, and then it stops. It doesn't shoot across the, st- across the sky or stay fixed within the expanse of space. That is not the description we have here at all. So don't let the name Estera fool you. I believe that this is the same Shekinah glory of God that accompanied the people of Israel in the wilderness. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Only something like the Shekinah could have led the wise men over the desert to Jerusalem, reappeared after their meeting with Herod, guided them to Bethlehem, and then stop over the place where the child was. And he's absolutely right. Only the Shekinah could do that. Honestly, it's the only explanation that really makes sense. This is God's Son, wrapped in human flesh. You can't follow a comet, and you certainly can't pick out a house by looking up at Saturn. But you can follow the glory of God that shatters the darkness. And you can trust His guidance to always lead you to Christ. This is the special revelation of God, His Word in the heavens. And friends, we have something better than that. We have the perfect special revelation of God designed to shine even brighter in the darkness of our hearts. 
Turn with me real quick to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's been a few years since we looked at this passage together. So let me remind you that Peter had the privilege of seeing Christ in his glory. Seeing Christ pull back the veil and reveal just a little bit of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He recalls that life-changing event at the end of 2 Peter chapter 1. And then he goes on to compare it with something even better. Look at what he says there, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's describing that evening, that, that glorious night, when Jesus revealed a glimpse of his glory, pulled back the veil of human flesh to show the glory of God within him. And what does he say? And we have the prophetic word, this word, God's written word, his holy word, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed than that even, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Listen, I know you know that this is no ordinary book. It is the bright and shining star that shines in our hearts and leads us to Christ. Back in Matthew... Look at the Magi's reaction to the Shekinah glory of God. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They superabounded with joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Because they knew that they were on the right path. They knew their destination was secure. They knew that this was no ordinary star. Like this was no ordinary king. Look at the beginning of verse 11. And going into the house, once again, no celestial body in space could pinpoint with GPS accuracy which house they needed to enter. But the glory of God leads them there. And going into the house, they saw the child, not the baby, the child, with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Oh, they came to worship. But I seriously doubt they expected to hit the ground like they did when they saw him. But that's what we see in Scripture, isn't it? When God reveals his glory, what happens? Man falls to the ground. We don't stand in the presence of God. We hit the ground. And that is exactly what happens to these wise men. I can't imagine, after all these Gentile, pagan, idol-worshipping, Zoroastrian magicians experienced, I wouldn't be surprised at all if this experience changed them and converted them to Old Testament saints. Like my old friend and seminary professor would say over and over and over again, the glory of God changes everything. 
The glory of God changes everything. That's number three, the king's glory. And finally, we see the king's gifts. The king's gifts. We see them in verse 11. Then opening their treasures. Notice they didn't bring trinkets. They brought treasures. They brought things that were of value to them. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Honestly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time focusing on the different gifts they brought. I'll mention them briefly. I listened to a few sermons earlier this month in preparation for preaching this text just to get a feel for what other people focused on and what other sermons may have, may have highlighted. Honestly, every single one of them that I listened to, which wasn't many, just a few, they all zeroed in on this particular aspect of, this, of the story. So I know there's stuff out there. There are lots of commentaries, study Bibles, and, and so forth that will point you in the right direction and give you a lot of information about these gifts. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them this morning. But if you check any of those resources, you'll see that, that gold is a gift of royalty. And it is an appropriate present for a king. And it's very likely that Joseph and Mary particularly appreciated the gold because it most likely helped fund their escape to Egypt a little later on. Frankincense was used in worship. It's possible that the Magi knew that this was more than just an extraordinary king of prophecy. Perhaps they knew that this king would be more than a man, but God himself, worthy of ritualistic worship. And then finally, myrrh, which was used to embalm dead bodies. There's only one thing that myrrh is really good for, and that's embalming the dead. It's a strange gift, if not downright offensive, to bring myrrh in tribute to a king. And you thought your white elephant was bad. I mean, you have to wonder, who in the world thought myrrh was a good idea? William Barclay writes, Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for one who was about to die. These were the gifts of the wise men. And even at the cradle of Christ, they foretold that he was to be the true king, the perfect high priest, and in the end, the supreme savior of men. These are the king's gifts. But more important than the items themselves is the fact that the Magi brought them in the first place. They didn't come empty-handed. They didn't say, oh yeah, look at that, the king, the greatest king of history, the one who will establish his throne forever, the one Daniel talked about hundreds of years ago. He has finally arrived onto the scene. The timing is right. The history is right. Now we see the Shekinah glory in the sky. We know that it's over there and towards the west where it was predicted and told that he would be, all of these things are lining up. Let's go. Let's go pay our respects. But let's do it empty-handed. That's not what they say to themselves. No, they bring these gifts with them. When they saw the Shekinah glory rising in the east, they set out for a long and dangerous journey, at least 40 days, through the Roman Empire while carrying precious gifts worthy of a king. Because that's what you do. That's exactly what you do when the object of your worship is worth it. It has been well said that salvation is the free gift that will cost you everything. And friends, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it all. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've got. Jesus is worth it. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He was born to die. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. This king is worthy of uninhibited worship, total submission, and joyful obedience. There is nothing this king doesn't deserve. 
So friends, bring him incense, gold and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Like I said, the glory of God changes everything. Look at verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That phrase, by another way, is a beautiful expression. It certainly refers to their physical journey as they likely cut across the Jordan River directly to the east in a hurry to get away from Herod. When they arrived, they, they came up and over and around through the Fertile Crescent because that would be the normal trade route to, to travel by. It was safer, it made more sense, it was still tra- dangerous and treacherous, but here they're in a hurry. They've been warned, get out of town, go now, and avoid Herod. So they most likely went directly to the east and, and went over the Jordan River. But it's not a stretch to say that their spiritual journey had altered directions as well. Having worshipped the Christ, their lives were changed. They came one way and they left another way. They came with pomp and circumstance, only to leave quietly, humbly, and discreetly. The parallels between their worship experience and ours are countless. Because the real encounter... Any real encounter that one has with the glory of the living God will have you leaving by another way. It is my prayer, having refamiliarized ourselves with this familiar story, that each and every one of us, we would not leave here the same way that we came. I hope and pray that that is not the way that we look at church. That's not the way that we look at our time together on Sundays as we come to worship Him together. There is something special that happens when we come together to be the body of Christ, when we come together to lift our voices in song together, but also gather around the Word of God to hear the Spirit of God speak into our lives. I hope and pray that that is something precious to you. That is something special. That is something that could never be inhibited or would ever, would ever be blocked by anything else in your life because it means more to you than anything else. I hope that none of us, I hope that none of us, when we come together and experience all the riches and the joys of worshiping and experiencing and beholding the glory of Christ, I hope that none of us leave the same way that we come. Instead, let us become more like Christ, beholding His glory in worship and in awe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for sending your Son. As we anticipate that joyous day, as we look forward to coming together even once more on Christmas Eve, as the body of Christ to worship your Son, to worship you, Lord, I pray that we would never lose sight of your glory. Lord, I pray that this word that we have that is more certain, that is more sure even than seeing the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration, than the glory of the Shekinah as it led these magi far from the east across treacherous and dangerous terrain to worship their king. Lord, I pray that we would not lose sight 
of that which we do have, which is more sure, which is better than that. Lord, I pray that your word, your revelation, the revelation that points us back to Christ continually, constantly, I pray that that light would shine so brightly in our hearts. Lord, that we would hold on to it, that we would never stop beholding your glory, that we would always live in a perpetual state of thankfulness, of awe, of grace knowing that you have sent your Son into this dark world to shine a great light, to save sinners. And he has done that. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. You are so wonderful. You are so magnificent, so marvelous, so great, so mighty, and so powerful to save. May we never lose sight of that this Christmas season or for the rest of the year. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.